creative, kind, and compassionate. No matter what, we can be we can be the warriors we need. What could possibly be more valuable than knowing the wilds, even in school, or experiencing the freedom and the connection that we find there? Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you very much. We have time for questions now. Thank you very much, Stuart. Now we will open up the questions. Please hop in the mic and just feel free. I think that should that work, uh, Stuart? Is that okay? That's wonderful. Okay. So let's start. I'll start. Wow. First of all, thank you, Stuart. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can, Julie. Thank you. I um I was really moved to hear everything that you got in really appreciate so yeah, obviously how much life you've brought to your life and um Oh, I'm so moved right now. <laughs> Thank you. Um I've never heard of a core value of resourcefulness and I grateful for that as well. And I think about us as adults and how so many of us have not had the privilege of growing up and learning in the environments that we're now creating and trying to create for the children to use each other. And I'm wondering about the team, the adults that are involved in your community and how, how you bring each other or how you bring people on, how you hire them, who they are, yeah, your, your approach to uh, that. That's a, a wonderful question, and, and uh, thank you, Julie. Um, uh, I don't have a, uh, an easy answer for you because uh, I uh, have uh, trained every teacher more than half of, I have about 30 teachers, and um, probably at least 20 of them never intended to go into teaching. There are people that I talked into becoming teachers and spend a long time uh, mentoring them. Uh, do not hire a teacher, trained or untrained, uh, and expect them to be functional significantly without at least three semesters of very close holding hands. Every teacher at our school gets a close mentor to work with, with for those three semesters. Uh, and uh, I also think that if your teacher has been uh, died in the wall in, in another type of system from yours for, you know, more than five years. They may have a cognitive dissonance that they may have a difficult time owning up to. So I, don't, I hate saying anybody is hopeless, but um, schools are a way of seeing. Uh, so the answer is is building uh, uh, building these teams over time with very close mentoring and. Uh, and uh, the second thing that you have to have is once you get a, a number of those close people to you, they become your leadership team and they start emanating out because you're really uh, creating teams of teams here. I hope I can ask you to clarify anything there if you like, Julie. No, it's, I, I'm really excited to hear the answer and I appreciate that, yeah. Oh, I'm sure I'll up at some point. Yeah, no, that, that 
We really appreciate that. Thank you. Julie, Julie, one other thing, and I think you can see this through the kind of talk I give, is that you have to have that ability to translate your values directly into action. And not that many people can do that, honestly. Uh, and so we read books together uh, and uh, we try to um, talk about theory. Every week uh, I, I reboot the school philosophy. And I, when I talk to other school heads, they're, they're not really talking about the mission. But we talk about the mission, which is the philosophy and what our purpose is constantly. And if, if a student shows up and is not wanting to do anything, Sometimes I'll just say, well, what do you want? Why did you come today? You don't have to be here. And just rebooting it back to that purpose. Other questions? Hi, I am from Los Angeles. I teach uh, kindergarten in the Los Angeles Unified School District. So, um, so it's really a it's really, it, it's so inspiring to hear you and it's really difficult to find that pocket, but um, I do every day and have not fortunately lost my job. So I wonder, it's a big task. Yeah. It's a very big task. There have been very difficult years. Uh, I, I'm wondering, I, I, I'm, I, it was by chance I happened upon this particular um, talk, but I'm wondering, um, do you ever, I don't know how to ask this. Do you ever do, I know you, doing outreach seems really silly because that's such a different thing, but do you ever, ever have relationships and connections with public educators and public schools in which they can grow alongside you? Uh, yes, we have uh, partner schools all over the world where the Grower School is a UNESCO affiliated school. So we have uh, 176 partners uh, all over the world and we sometimes meet with them. Uh, and I have uh, mixed results uh, in the uh, public arena. Some of them like you have said, yeah, I'm looking for those pockets. Um, but I just have to tell people when they complain bitterly about how their job is impossible, uh, that that's not okay. I, um, I mean, if you, you can acknowledge you're just doing it for the money or you have to risk your job. And Zena, it sounds to me like you're doing that. And sometimes uh, risking your job is as simple as, as knowing how far to let a, a digression unspool because you know the kids think it's really cool and they're getting away with something, but they're loving it and they're getting they're getting into a pocket. And uh, so uh, I was a tenured uh, public school teacher. Uh, and uh, I have to say that uh, the union was never very thrilled with me. Uh, and I'm so happy I had that experience because I, 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 it helps me understand what you're going through. The district I worked at had been through a long, uh, almost a semester long shutdown. Um, so uh, I was always willing to risk my job and Go for it. That's the only thing I can really say. And just like sometimes in the political arena right now, there are certain things that uh, you cannot let stand. Sometimes you have to speak out. Uh, and uh, it's tough. If you can't say no, you've lost the power to say yes. Thank you. Dr. Grauer, we have a question here uh, in the chat box. Okay. Uh, the first question, uh, the question is by Dilipa Manawadu. 
She asks, what are the traits to look for teacher coach facilitators? We understand that a teacher qualification probably might even be a disqualification. And the second question, if I can ask you now, uh, can you share some of the pocket six alternative measurements? Sure. Um, those are two very different kinds of questions. Uh, and I'm not sure I can answer them quickly, but uh, the traits of teachers, uh, I'll never forget one teacher uh, who came in uh, and I had a, uh, a beautiful, calm Labrador retriever in the school and uh, he was applying for a teacher job and he said to me, uh, does the Board of Health know about that dog in the school? And uh, I thought, he's not gonna be a teacher here. And the next candidate uh, came out, uh, and I watched her as she, uh, I like to watch my candidates after interviews, watch them walk out. And uh, outside in the parking lot, there was the dog, and she knelt down and grabbed it and looked at it in the eyes and rubbed its jowls, and I thought, that's a good person. And uh, I hope that's not a silly story. I'm looking for empathic communication. I'm looking for, uh, for warmth. I believe um, that everything is energy and you when you're with a person when you're with a person you know whether they have energy and you have to sense that that kind of energy such as as Zena was just giving us you can feel that uh, and uh, obviously uh, you should sit in on as many teacher interviews as you can if you're new at it because it can take years to uh, begin to assess some of these things. Uh, and uh, I don't hold it against you if you have a, uh, uh, a teaching degree. I think that's lovely. It's interesting that so many of my teachers after a year or two of teacher teaching have gone back and gotten enrolled in master's degree programs and then gotten master's degrees. <laughs> a lot of them, not just a few. Uh, and I think that's wonderful. Uh, as far as the second part of the question, uh, what are some of the assessments of values? Uh, there are two basic kinds. If you decide what your school values are and put them those values, ask questions which you think determine those values on Likert type scales like one through five, you can turn qualitative data into quantitative data. And if you ask those same questions every year for three years, <coughs> all of a sudden you have longitudinal data. So you can start to get reliability in your own school. That's a you know semester-long course in educational evaluation in one sentence. Um, second thing you can do is to use either the Panorama uh, survey or the HESI or a middle school survey of student engagement and start to research some of these other normed batteries and what we're looking for something that has norms that can apply to your school such as in your nation or global norms and i'm not talking about pisa norms or standardized achievement tests or college boards i'm talking about tests that you can give to students that measure their connection to school or their engagement levels these are the types of things that are showing because everybody in the room is a democratic educator you're here because you know once the students have the engagement and have the ownership and have the voice, the rest takes care of itself. They'll, they'll, they'll jam the content down their own selves. So that's why we measure what matters. And so uh, 
two, uh, I hope I answered those two complex questions uh, quickly and helpfully. Uh, Derry, looks like you've got a question, but you're muted. You're going to have to unmute yourself. Yes. Okay. Sorry about that. No, I loved your talk. I, I created a democratic class in an English uh, high school uh, some years ago, and uh, I fully expected to get fired. Um, these were 11-year-olds who just failed a standardized test. It had really destroyed their confidence. We used to do this and still do in some parts of England, a barbaric test at 11. So you either go to the high school that takes you to university or the high school that doesn't take you anywhere. So I created the democratic class in the high school that uh, didn't take you anywhere and uh, fully expected to get fired. Um, but after a year, when this grade moved up a grade, I got put in charge of all seven classes of that year group. And that was even more terrifying than getting fired. But that's another discussion. But lovely talk. Thank you. Thank you, and congratulations. Uh, you're a risk taker and a hero. Sorry, <laughs> write it up. I, I, have, I just written a book, actually. I'll oh, put it in chat. Put it in the chat. Everybody should buy it. It's an e-book, and I'll put a code. You can get it for two dollars forty-five. So it's a bargain. Thank you, Terry. <laughs> uh, and Veda, I think you're monitoring the chat room. I can't multitask at that level. So feel free, Veda, to let me know if there's any chats. It looks like uh, Nevin has a question. Um, may I have questions, sir, yeah. please? Oh, I'm sorry. I, yeah, I don't. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, may I have a question? I'm, I'm French. <laughs> I have a short experience with my, um, 10 years ago, with my farm. I had a farm with uh, herbals, medicinal plants. And my way to welcome children was to provide sensorial visits. Do you understand? I'm sorry for my accent. Okay. But what I have seen is very important because sensorial energy information children keep with their eyes, with ear, with nose, to smell, with the touch. It's just unbelievable because it is really the way to be linked with nature. It is really the way to be linked with life. And my question to you is, um, are you teaching those things in, um, in your school? I mean, to, because it makes children more conscious, in consciousness with their body, the way the body is able to um, understand and to keep information, to analyze information, and so they are more um, in autonomia with their body and with environment. Do you understand what I mean? I think so. Uh, you're wanting ah. to know whether our students are integrating uh, nature and animals into their studies. But uh, with the way of energy and uh, of uh, sense, with the five senses. Yeah, with the five senses. Ah. Uh, you know, I have a funny story about that. Uh, I, I, um, we're in Southern California here, and I'm up against a lot of pressure. Uh, even though our school is completely against putting these kinds of pressure on, on our students, and we work constantly, uh, it's just there. And so many of them were uh, getting anxious. In, in the United States, and I think in other, many other countries right now, anxiety is at epidemic levels. So even at the Grower School, we're having to, to help chill kids out and 
get them away from this way of seeing. So last, uh, so uh, for several years now, every year during final exams, we are uh, bringing on a, uh, a a petting zoo onto the campus, uh, and or else we'll bring on a, a, a cage in the middle of the campus with a bunch of puppies in it, and you should see the uh, what happens to the kids. It's absolutely amazing. It could be a scientific experiment. Now, we do have uh, dogs on our campus, but they have to be screened carefully. Uh, a two-year-old-a-year or, two or uh, Labrador retriever, for instance, is particularly calm and beautiful and loving. Certain types of dogs are well-suited for animals. And we have uh, chickens and certain kids go out there and love to nurture them. And I think what you're going for, pause here, is not a sense of studying animals, but a sense of, of nurturance uh, and connection to nature. Is that right? Yes, it's right. And I have seen, you know, one just with a touch, one is uh, rough and one is soft. And for them, it's very important because they improve their language and they improve their feeling and they improve, they, they know better their body. For example, smelling something, is oh my God, it goes first to the lungs. So this herbal is good for lungs. And yes. I well, think it's a nice way to, to teach children to know better their body and to know better the flowers and herbal. This one is good for that. This one is good for that. Yeah. And I, I, I'm getting a sense that you don't necessarily mean uh, formal teaching so much as you mean just general exposure and having uh, the students have access to all of these things. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Wonderful. And I also want to say, pause that during my talk, you were a wonderful uh, presence uh, and I appreciated it. Namaste. I think Namaste. What, uh, what Paz was talking was about uh, aromatherapy. Am I right? Yes, but not only, not only, yes, of course, olfacto, olfacto therapy, olfacto, with nose, not only with essential oil. <laughs> I think that we can address this question about uh, the relationship to democratic education with the environment of the school, because uh, some of the other schools made fun of me back in the 90s, and they said, well, Stewart School is just uh, beanbags and puppy dogs, and I had to fight with them and say, What's wrong with beanbags and puppy dogs? Your kids are a stressed out wreck. But let's talk about some other environmental uh, factors that we can have. Yes, I buy uh, candles and aroma scenting units for uh, most of my teachers and <coughs> very much advocate for them. Um, all of our classes uh, go indoors and outdoors. Uh, and also uh, we have, um, instead of bells, I have created with our computer program a program called Zen Bells, and it's programmed to the school. Uh, we have a, a, a block schedule, so our periods are extra long, but between them and during lunchtime and before and after school, instead of a grinding buzzer or a bell, what you get is very soft floating music like Baroque music or ocean waves comes in and you can hardly even know when the period ends. And so when I go to other schools, large schools, when the period ends, you know it because kids pound out of the door and it's almost like an interruption. And it's, a, it's disturbing to see a, a change of period in many large schools. But 
at our school, it's just a lovely thing. You're not quite sure it's even happening. And all of a sudden it gradually is, is, is building up. And yeah, you can see, oh, I guess the, the period is changing and the soft music is playing. Sometimes it could just be light jazz music or, or Hawaiian music or, you know, and uh, that program's called Zen Bells. <laughs> Uh, there are so many ways of softening the environment. Uh, by the way, the color of the walls is very important as well. Uh, and uh, and the lighting, you don't want any fluorescent lights in your school. And we, if any chance you have to uh, put in skylights or natural lighting uh, or full spectrum lighting, uh, naturally that's uh, very valuable. Uh, and I know that in the large public schools like L.A., it might be hard to get away from some of those. But you can actually, on your own, go out and purchase long uh, those long tube lights that fit into your fluorescent units and are non-fluorescent. I'm sure you'll have to do it at your own expense, but I would think it would be well worth it if you have an extra uh, $1,500 for your classroom. Or somebody else had, uh, it looked like, was it Lerna? Okay. And by the way, I'm sorry, I'm terrible at attending to who is raising their hand next. But, uh, thank you, Lerna. Uh, hello, and thank you very much uh, for the beautiful and inspiring uh, stories that you take uh, from the past, from your childhood till now. Um, I am joining from Istanbul, and you were describing about your school that uh, these um, young kids or, or the teenagers are in the um, nature. So I feel a bit curious how is the relationship in your school with the technology because uh, also from your childhood till now we have this fact in our lives now the, the, the cell phones and the pads. So how you uh, regulate, the, is there any regulation for technology in your school? Um, this is my question. Thank yes, you. Yes, that's a, a very controversial uh, topic because uh, you know, um, technology, if used in some ways, possibly uh, creates a kind of an allure. It's a draw, and it comes because you go down into that hole, and it can be consuming. And uh, some some educators feel like students need to find their own way out of it, and other people find it to be related to addiction and want to stop it. And I'm not going to solve that problem for you today, uh, except to say that uh, all of our, we have uh, pouches in every classroom and every student is required to put their cell phone in the pouch when they enter into a, a class. Uh, there's another reason for doing that, uh, aside from just the allure of technology and, and the distraction. And that is, we have to be very, very careful that our classrooms even on Zoom, are not becoming uh, um, uh, uh, windows to the world. The classroom is sacred space, and the teacher needs to make absolutely sure that what's happening in that classroom uh, is um, uh, uh, private and protected, and the students can feel freely. Uh, right now, with all the Zoom boxes, we even have to uh, uh, take a hard line with many of our parents uh, who stick their head in right in the middle of class, and we have to explain, well, you wouldn't do that in a classroom. Uh, so uh, the pouches are the main way we regulate at the school. Obviously, it's a problem. When Zoom first started eight months ago, the students and the teachers were complaining uh, bitterly about Zoom, Zoom burnout. 
Uh, eventually, we pointed out that they actually were not on their technolo technological, on their screen more than they had been before. It was about the same, you know, it's whatever, six, seven, eight hours a day. And now uh, what's happening is that they're used to Zoom uh, and it's just simply a, a shift in what they're doing. And I know I am and I know many of you are becoming a little more sensitive to the Zoom screen and starting to notice gestures and being able to, to have a sensitivity on Zoom that we didn't uh, necessarily have before. It's not lifelike, but it's become a little more lifelike. Um, and uh, it's most likely that uh, Zoom is here uh, to stay because it, it also... In I'm going to cut that off there just because not only do I not love the last sentence that he said of Zoom is here to stay, but I know that that will just go on a long time. And if anyone wants to see the full talk or many, many more talks like that, you can go to the Facebook page, Web International Democratic Education Conference, and almost all the topics and all the talks along with other, a lot of other videos are all saved there. And I'm going to read a article before I cut this off that's written by the guy who was talking. And um, it's called Leadership Team, The Joy That Sustains. He has just like most alternative schools. There's, a, there's usually a blog that accompanies the school. And I'm not even going to read the whole thing. I'm just touching on the idea. So if we are going to be on a mission, on mission and on a mission, we have to trust in and empower strong leadership. Our collaborative leadership model enables our leadership to be deep, sustainable, and shared. As head of school, I do not manage our school. It is co-managed by our leadership team and various program leaders. I am incredibly fortunate to have a phenomenal leadership team. I have participated in building leadership capacity in all these leaders for many years, and now these leaders are training other leaders, all of whom are training one another and me all of the time. It's cross-pollination and it's self-renewing. The school had a leadership team before I even knew what a leadership team did or was in the early days of the school. I just knew that I needed to be surrounded by people who were smarter than me. Whenever we realized, realized a teacher at the school was engaged in a whole school change, activities were, that were sustained, we added them to this team. For my part, I always went about it backwards. Rather than appoint someone to a position of trust and then expect them to perform in that position, I always identified people who were performing as leaders naturally and then informed them, you're on the team. Eventually, we called it a leadership team. I don't believe it was a conscious decision, it just evolved, sort of tribally. Originally, our leadership team focused hard on the individual students. Weekly, we would review lots of data and observations and determine which students or teachers needed an extra hand. That shifted in 2012. I returned from my sabbatical with a fresh view from 35,000 feet, and I could see that we needed a new focus. At that point, offloading and explaining all the innermost workings of the school to this amazing team became my mission. More about the heritage and history, how the finances work, how the board worked, how we marketed, what our strategy for success was, and as much vision as I could pack into every meeting. 
So the work of, of analyzing student and teacher needs was transformed over to a newly formed Dean team. So I don't think it's too important to talk about the individual things about his team building. I just wanted to draw a little attention to the website, Grower School. This isn't maybe my particular favorite flavor of democratic school, but it's just a taste. And he, Stuart Grower wrote a book called Fearless Teaching. And there's a, let's see, it says, it's a stirring and audacious, audacious jaunt around the world that peaks with the eyes of one of America's most seasoned educators into places you will surely never see on your own. Some are disappearing. It is a bit like playing hooky from school. You will travel to the Swiss Alps, Korea, Navajo, an abandoned factory in Missouri, the Holy Land, the Great Rift Valley, the schools of Cuba, the ocean waves, and the human subconscious. Oh, and Disneyland. There you will find colorful stories for the encouragement, inspiration, and courage needed by educators and parents. Fearless teaching is not a fix-it book. It is more a way of seeing the world and the school so that you can stay in your work and focus on what matters most to you. And there's a review right here that's by Richard Dreyfus, the guy who plays the psychologist in What About Bob, who's apparently also an Oxford scholar. And it says, Grower's writing reminds us that great teaching, singular, rare, unusual, is something that should be sought after and found. Thank you. So Richard Dreyfus has this um, initiative of his own that's called, it's something, it's called the Civics Initiative, the Dreyfus Civics Initiative, and his whole initiative is trying to get civics education back in classrooms, and not that it's completely gone, but it's pretty much um, hugely debilitated, and there's a lot to debate and talk about about what, what healthy civics education would be, but it's a it's an interesting topic for sure. Civics in general, we, like, we, we can think about it just in terms of civics, in terms of our government, but there's so many ways to, to try to understand that civics is just how, how you're involved in society, honestly. So just an idea to throw in there.